Goodbye. Hi, everyone. This is Andy. Um, today's episode is a conversation with myself and Professor Aiko Day, who's an English professor at Mount Holyoke College. And we talked about her 2016 book called Alien Capital. Uh, so what is this book about? Um, in this book, uh, she's trying to make an argument about um, the racialization of Asian immigrants to North America using history, literature, and art. Um, and she's kind of making a few different claims, right? That, you know, at a, ba- at a basic level, race is not natural. It's, a, it's historically constructed and it's tied to the development of capitalism in North America, right? And in that sense, it's not that different from, you know, more familiar stories we have of how, you know, whiteness was constructed, blackness was constructed in the 19th century and so on. Um, but of course, she's more specifically interested in how uh, Asians and East Asians in particular were racialized uh, during this period. And the basic argument is something that um, Asians have been seen as embodying the sort of abstract and threatening social ills of global capitalism. Right? And this, the examples span from the 19th century with Chinese miners who are excluded, Japanese farmers in the 20th century who become interned, right, and uh, post-1965 quote-unquote model minority Asian immigrants who are alternatingly praised but also scapegoated and demonized and excluded uh, in the 21st century. Uh, so the uh, conclusion is that you know anti-Asian racism, the closest analogy is probably not anti-Black racism, which is the most common reference point, right? But it's probably something more like modern anti-Semitism. And here she's drawing upon uh, Marxist theory and the late Marxist uh, theorist Moish Postone and his kind of influential essay on anti-Semitism and capitalism. And one takeaway of this is, and you know, this is just me talking now. Um, I was thinking afterwards. Um, a takeaway is, you know, you often hear this phrase anti-capitalism or anti-capitalist in political writing, in you know, academia and leftist media and so on. And I don't think we have a clear definition of what anti-capitalism looks like. But what I think Postone and Day are trying to warn against is a very common temptation. And the temptation is to take this thing called capitalism, this very sprawling, abstract system of impersonal social relationships, and to reduce it and pin it on a particular personal group of you know a bad people who are responsible for all the ills of poverty and exploitation and so on, right? And historically, this kind of scapegoating has had a lot of disastrous consequences for a lot of people, right? For Jewish people, for Asian people, and for many other groups of people. And ultimately, it doesn't actually change anything, right, with, with the economic system. Um, now, we know right-wing groups do this, but I think history shows left-wing groups have also done this as well. And Day calls this, uh, quote, romantic anti-capitalism, a sort of nostalgic way of thinking about the world in terms of its reified forms instead of the actual system itself. So I think one takeaway is to remind ourselves, you know, first of all, to avoid this kind of temptation and to think about confronting capitalism in a more productive way rather than a reactionary way, right? And to avoid sort of personalizing it. And another takeaway is that, you know, this, this goal, this project of confronting and overcoming harmful ways of racializing groups, you know, from Asians to Jewish people to black to Latino to Muslim people and so on, right? Um, this project of challenging racialization is also tied to um, a, a broader project of chal- challenging the economic inequalities that help to produce race and help to produce racialization and reproduce them over and over. One final word, um, the format for today's episode is a little bit different. We actually read this book as the first book in, um, I guess, what will be a monthly book club uh, as part of our Time to Say Goodbye Discord, meaning you know many listeners and Discord members read the book together and discussed it online last week. 
And then earlier this week, I spoke with Professor Day online with many Discord members, you know, listening and attending and, and uh, be, you know, being part of the conversation. And by the second half of the conversation, there was about a 30 minute, uh, 30 minutes, a chunk of time where Discord members actually asked questions directly to Professor Day about the book, um, either, you know, asking me to read the questions out loud or um, a couple of them actually asked questions themselves. Um, so, you know, hopefully that's a little bit more um, stimulating and a little bit more interactive and interesting uh, for listeners. Um, okay, so, you know, obviously, you know how to get in touch with us on by Twitter, TTSGpod, email, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Patreon and Substack. And, you know, thanks for, for your support and thanks for listening. Um, so I thought we might begin just to, you know, familiarize listeners um, with you, just uh, maybe a brief background on where you grew up, how you grew up, and how those early years made it, might have shaped your decision to eventually study Asian American studies and ethnic studies at, at Berkeley, where you did your, your dissertation. Uh, well, I think that um, that's a great question. I, I hardly ever talk about sort of the whole, you know, how it all um, unfolded for me, but... Um, I, I actually grew up in Canada, so that's, I think that that is a, a really important part of just, like many people, you know, our projects are sort of based in, you know, where we're from. And so when I was growing up, I actually, <clears throat> you know, grew up alongside, you know, constant struggles over, um, you know, Indigenous land claims and other, like the blockade movement. And so that was a really formative experience for me. Um, and so when I um, actually moved to the U.S. for the Ph.D. program in ethnic studies, um, everything seemed, you know, very black and white to me and um, and very different, you know, from the sort of experience that I had had in Canada, which isn't to say that Canada is not also a very anti-black nation, but it just felt that, the, you know, our the racial formation was really different. So um, over time, I was just trying to understand kind of like my own sort of, location as an Asian North American. And I was never really convinced because of the black, white kind of binary racial sort of understanding in the US. Um, and that Latinx and Asian Americans were always sort of in between. I was like, never, that seemed very unclear or vague to me. Um, and indigeneity was never part of that equation. So, um, so what I was interested in first was like the differences in, in US and Canadian racial formation and particularly the evolution of different systems of class, racial classification. And then, um, but then I was started to see how the, the parallels in anti-Asian racism were so remarkably striking that I was like, well, okay, so if we have two different kinds of racial formations, um, how, what accounts then for the sort of like eerie similarity in parallel in anti-Asian racism? And you can kind of extend um, that observation, not just to U.S. and Canada, but to other settler colonies like Australia and New Zealand, which in another, in another era of the project, kind of, I could I was hoping to include those other settler colonies. Um, anyway, so um, so the the sort of common denominator, you know, was British settler colonialism, and so um, I decided then to approach the question of Asian racialization um, from the position of. Um, indigenous land, right? So rather than sort of from a kind of uh, a framework of black and white, but instead to privilege kind of um, indigenous land, which is which 
um, in the project kind of gets developed as thinking through what I call the heterogeneity of, uh, of an alien position, um, which includes, you know, the transatlantic slavery, also the, um, the uh, you know, migration of Asian laborers, and you could also, I, you could also include other um, racialized groups that come to, to settler colonies yeah, to labor. Yeah. I'm also curious then, was the interest in, in Marx and Marxism, which is pretty crucial to this book, right? Political economy, let's say. Um, was that always there from the beginning of your interest in these topics? I would say that yes, and it's a kind of a complicated yes. Um, uh, I started um, out kind of interested in Asian, Asian Canadian literature, actually. And I, I came to the U.S. actually to study with Asian American literary scholars like Elaine Kim and Zhao Ling Wang. As a graduate student, I was um, introduced to a lot of like social science research because I had been in literature, I have a master's in English. I just took every single social science class that I possibly could and I became very obsessed with actually the work of the cultural Marxism of Pierre Bourdieu. Mm. Mm. Uh, that lasted for a while, and then I kind of like let that go, <laughs> thankfully. But um, <laughs> but then I but I also um, was introduced to Moishe Pustone right. um, through from my advisor, um, uh, one of my advisors, Christopher Nealon. Um, mm, so okay. uh, and so I mean, at the time when I when I read Moishe, Moishe Pustone, who was on I think my my uh, dissertation orals, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, examination list. Um, I think that I just didn't really appreciate the significance of his intervention because I wasn't, I didn't understand capital uh, enough. And so it wasn't the, actually the book capital, the book, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book capital. Um, and so it wasn't actually until after I graduated that, um, I was able to really start to really study capital yeah. And then I was able to see, okay, so what Moise Postone is saying is that, you know, the real, uh, the real intervention that Marxism offers is not a critique of capitalism from the standpoint of labor, but right. really a critique of labor under uh, right. capitalist social relations. And so, I mean, that distinction was lost on me as a graduate student. Yeah. But it actually, so just that one um, understanding that more deeply, yeah. I guess, afterwards helped me uh, expand actually the arguments I made in my dissertation, which were much more shallow and kind of more focused on kind of forms of nationalism in Canada, the U.S. And this allowed me to sort of think about settler colonial political economy and the use of, and, and the and the way that labor functions. Yeah. So, so that was. Yeah. yeah. So I, I definitely want to get there eventually. I have a whole, you know, a question about the postone intervention, but I think maybe for listeners um, who have not read your work or are just kind of vaguely familiar with it, I thought we might want to just step back and sure. kind of just set, set it up, right? Um, and I thought I might just begin by saying, um, talking about like the way I came to your work and what I think it's doing, and you can tell me what I'm wrong about and maybe explain what you think you're doing um, better. Um, so to zoom out, I think the, the reason I find your work very useful is um, it's, it's a sophisticated intervention into like a very... There's like a few steps we can make in this discussion about like race and racism in North America. The very generic common sense one you'll see probably on like on television shows is that people from around the world, for whatever reason, come to dislike each other and we just have to tolerate each other more and it's almost like primordial or natural. And then I'd say in like in the last 10 years or so, at least in the US, that conversation has been, I think, advanced in the sense that there's been more conversation about uh, 
racism is not natural but historical and it's not just uh feelings in our hearts and thoughts in our mind it's economic it's material and so we've had conversations about you know reparations um, the 1619 project, right? The categories like racial capitalism. That said, those conversations, like as you said, are largely, right? At least in the mainstream, black-white conversations for obvious reasons in this country. Um, but I think it does leave a lot of us who are neither black nor white, or uh, or just like more, you know, thinking about the rest of the population, wondering about, well, are all racisms the same? And mm-hmm. are are different races? Or how? Or I guess we probably all understand that different groups get racialized differently, but that conversation never really happens um, other than an acknowledgement, you know, that's like, oh, different groups get racialized differently. So I thought your group, your book was really interesting, um, not just because you're specifically trying to think about how, how do Asian North Americans get racialized, but you're connecting it to this broader conversation about capitalism as an economic and historical phenomenon. And you're being specific, right? You're saying Asians get racialized in a way that might be slightly different than the way black people do or indigenous or Latino people do not to play oppression Olympics, but just to say, this is all part of something bigger. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm missing anything there, but, and otherwise you could also perhaps just, you know, in your own words, kind of lay out what is the argument you make um, um, at the very second or third page of your book, you just make this very uh, uh, straightforward sentence. Asian North Americans are uncomfortably associated with capital. Um, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that you that's a great that's a great way to sort of frame it. Um, just so there are a couple of things that I wanted to just try to respond to in, that you raised, which were the question of you know multiple racisms, Olympic uh, or uh, sorry uh, oppression Olympics. I mean, I think that it's important to understand that you know like white settler colonial racial capitalism is you know, the sort of the system that is being reproduced through these different kinds of these forms of racialization, right? So, so it it doesn't like, so oppression of Olympics doesn't really uh, capture that, I think. I mean, I think that it's important to understand the specificity of anti-Asian relation, racism, which is not, which cannot be conflated with anti-Black racism, which cannot be conflated with uh, forms of indigenous dispossession, etc. So, um, that specificity is is really really important to me, and 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 it's really important to the project. Um, so um, one of the things that I think just for a, a really broadly for a general audience, um, you know, we I think that the the popular understanding of racism is is something based on uh, inferiority, right? So. Racism is about seeing uh, racial other as inferior to white people. And so I think that is the first intervention that or the first observation that I was like, you know, I don't really see that. I see that to some. I mean, there's obviously some form of inferiority that's being uh, projected onto Asians, but it seems like that's something more threatening. I mean, even in the sort of ideology of the yellow peril, it's about a threat. <laughs> um, obviously, blackness is is also framed in terms of criminal threat, but it's also it's it has a very different kind of genealogy. So I was more interested in understanding. Okay, so if there's something about uh, the ontology of anti-Asian racism that's based on 
something threatening, something threateningly foreign. Um, that led me to sort of thinking about, you know, Asians being sort of the ontology of, of Asian racialization is, is somewhat abstract and hard to and intangible even. Whereas for black people or anti-blackness is based on sort of this idea that blackness itself is, you know, um, is, is permanently, you know, biological, you know, and, and very tangible. So, so, um, so that get me, so that sort of led me to sort of think about these correspondences in terms of thinking about the abstraction of Asian racialization and then thinking about, um, the way, um, you know, Asians have, Asians can be associated with a certain, element of abstraction that's um, embedded in capitalism. Yeah, so I just wanted to kind of, however you want to do this, kind of uh, fill in the blanks. What do you mean when you say Asian North Americans are uncomfortably associated with capital? Um, and then later on, to perhaps also give more context, um, you say later on that, um, you know, Asian, the, the, the famous stereotypes are Asians are either yellow peril, right, 19th century railroad workers, most famously, or they're model minorities, right, like post-1965, SAT, perfect SAT score, taking Asian students, right? And those might seem like opposites, but you're kind of saying there's a continuity um, across those. So maybe you could perhaps explain what you mean by that. Yeah, and that that's really building on the work of like Colleen Lai, who, who, you know, first, you know, really argued that there's this kind of economism of the Asiatic racial form. And so when you think about all the the moments that have led to sort of these episodes and anti-Asian racism, they tend to have the sort of economic basis. So you can think of like these huge uh, dislocations, particularly white male labor dislocations that happen at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, where um, Chinese labor is sort of, you know, called cheap labor, but really that's another way to translate that is that they represent kind of an excessive efficiency, right? That is displacing white labor. So so there's an economism in that. Um, in the 20th century, like particularly in the 20s and 30s, the Japanese, at least, and, and this is Colleen's argument, which is about how the Japanese become associated with kind of monopoly agricultural power. Um, and so that can be another way that we understand the motivation for Japanese um, relocation and, and incarceration, right, um, during World War II. Um, and then even when we think of something like, you know, a, a really probably more well-known example of Vincent Chin, you know, we can think about global economic restructuring that has basically led to the demise of the U.S. auto industry to Japanese, you know, competition. Um, and that was a period of profound kind of anti-Japanese sentiment in the U.S. So so I'm thinking about how, the, the, again, that, and in particularly with uh, Vincent Chin, I mean, he was, he was the personification in many ways of uh, of a Japanese economic uh, threat um, in the sense that um, the two men who beat him to death with a baseball bat said, it's because of you that we are out of work, right? So, so that's kind of where, where I'm going with the, the, the argument about the economism of, of Asian racialization. So what where the continuity is, is that, you know, under yellow peril, it's sort of cheap labor as an economic threat to white labor. But even when we think about the model minority inclusion, there is this sort of idea of efficiency. So there's a sort of through line when we think about the economism of both. So, um, so it's, it's a way of thinking about the model minority stereotype, not necessarily being any kind of, um, develop like sort of uh, reinvention of Asians rather it's sort of a continuity 
Yeah, yeah, and in your book, by the end of the book, you start talking about sort of the post-65 moment. Um, you analyze, um, is it, I should have looked, I've written this down, like Kevin, Ke- Kenneth Lum is the artist? Ken Lum, and yeah. Ken, Ken Lum. Lum. And Karen um, Yamashita, Te or Te Yamashita, the, the novelist, um, writing about examples of <coughs> what you, uh, you come to call a high-tech coolie. Uh, which is to say the sort of hyper-efficient but, you know, still valorized along economic lines, kind of Asian immigrant in sort of white-collar, middle-class jobs, um, and so on. And I think it's really useful. Um, And I want to talk about that eventually, but I think it is useful to think about the headlines (laughs) that typically uh, are associated with Asian immigrants in North America and just kind of ask yourself to what extent is this linked to this question of hyper-efficiency? You know, there's all this... There's the debates about affirmative action, of course, and standardized testing. There's, uh, but there's also the flip side of this would be like fears of uh, tech companies or cheap labor overseas, and 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 perhaps also um, in in the U.S. kind of displacing jobs. Um, so I think that's I take I think that's actually a really useful way to think about this. Um, and I think to perhaps expand upon it, um, I want to also talk about the other comparison that you begin the book with, which is this comparison that, that I think a lot of people perhaps. Um, thinking that this is like not for polite society but have whispered about before have said like you know are Asians like Jewish people <laughs> you know or Asian Asian people and Jewish people have the same history in a lot of ways um in in the United States especially um which is to say that they are kind of uh well the the comparison here is obviously uh grounded in the Moish Postone essay that you mentioned before where Moish Postone says you know modern anti-semitism had well, there's something specific about modern anti-Semitism in World War II that had to do with the history of industrial capitalism in Western Europe. <laughs> Along the same lines, there's a lot of stereotypes of, um, you know, let's say, East Asian immigrants to the United States and Canada uh, that was analogous to, uh, or that that had a relationship to, you know, the process of industrial capitalism in this part of the world, um, and so you. You know, in, in Moishe's essay, he talks about how Jewish people were stereotyped as industrious, greedy, and evil, which was like the flip side to being a power, like all powerful and um, successful in finance, right? Asian uh, immigrants are seen similarly as abstract, non-human, a lot of the same. They might not be the stereotype might not be finance; it might be different sectors of the economy, but the same stereotype is that you know, as you said, they're a threat. Um, could you kind of explain? Um, this analogy better and or you know better than me. Um, or now explain this analogy more and and perhaps kind of explain what you mean with this phrase. I don't know if you came up with this or if you're quoting someone else. Romantic anti-capitalism, right? Is you, is what you say is kind of the the cornerstone of this part of your argument. Um, do you want to explain what you mean by romantic anti-capitalism? So romantic anti-capitalism is not in fact a. F- it's not, in fact, um, anti-capitalist at all. It's a kind of a regressive, kind of anti-liberal form of of of, of anti or capitalism that sort of misunderstands um, what capitalism is. But before maybe, but what I want to do is like before I kind of give the end of the answer, I just wanted to actually think that it might be easier to explain by looking at the sort of examples that you did, which were about like the similarity between Jewish people and Asian people. And one of the, that's one of the ways that I start my book by talking about this sort of stereo or this phrase, the new Jews, like are Asian or the question, you know, are Asian Americans, the new Jews, Um, which I think in the way that that framing is supposed to, it's supposed to communicate that, Oh, Asians like Jewish people, 
have basically become white or have assimilated into the United States, unlike, you know, other non-assimilable uh, groups of color. Um, but what I do is by by drawing on Moish Pistone is to sort of look at the, you know, the more sinister aspects of that comparison of Asians with Jews. So, um, and so what he does is he has a really interesting reinterpretation of the Holocaust where he argues that Jewish people have, you know, he, he observes that Jewish people have always been associated with um, financial sectors of the economy. And for, you know, a long time, they were segregated in uh, interest-bearing economies. I mean, uh, uh, Judaism doesn't have a prohibition on interest. So, you know, there, so there's this whole, whole you know, association of Asian, or sorry, with Jewish people with, with money. Um, and so he says, but during this sort of turbulent, uh, rapid industrialization in the late 19th century and early 20th century, leading up to, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the beginnings of national socialism, you know, Jews just, be, they become um, not just um, associated with money, but they become kind of the personification of money. Uh, so, and, and everything destructive about it, because also, as we know, um, you know, after World War One, Germany fell into this massive, you know, they were incredibly indebted and it was like this, uh, their massive inflation. So, so, so Jews just sort of were the face of that became the personification of that destabilization. Um, and so there was sort of a desire, okay, well, we need to sort of, it, it's almost a, like purge all ex abstraction which is associated with money or the destructive elements of capitalism that has this Jewish face. Um, and so that's his, what his argument is, is that we need to sort of expunge this abstract evil, which is embedded in capitalism. Of course, um, you know, if we, it's a, that, that is a misunderstanding of how capitalism works, which operates as both, it has, it's a sort of dialectic of both the concrete and the abstract, you know, money is just a, and a material expression of capital. So, so, so anyways, so it's a total, so what romantic anti-capitalism does, it sort of divides the world into what's natural and what's unnatural, what's pure, what's impure. And when we think of that at the sort of level, if we want to biologize that sort of perspective, you know, then it's going to, you're going to start to sort of ask who is, who is natural, who is unnatural, who is pure, who is impure. And, um, these ideologies have actually been really kind of, you know, prominent within settler colonialism, right, which also wants to see who is rooted to the land, who is not, who is, um, you know, which kind of explains how white settlers identify so strongly with a native, you know, a form of with indigeneity, right? And continually we see films where white men are, you know, become super native people. Um, and then sort of to expunge again the the sort of alien abstract presence. So, um, so that's sort of the the sort of the, this oppositional world that that romantic anti capitalism kind of constructs. Um, more recent kind of expressions of it, I think, are are in like the eco fascist movement, where we can even see with. Um, the murders in El Paso and in Christchurch, New Zealand, the gunmen in both of those cases said, you know, they had to kill immigrants to restore nature, right? So it's it's about like nature, and that that extends to kind of environmental nature. So even in the you know in the nineteen twenties, um, 
environmental movements that we associate with people like, you know, John Muir and the Sierra Club, they had actually very, you know, romantic anti-capitalist and eugenicist ideas embedded in those you know, environmental protectionist movements where they saw like, you know, the destruction of forests as sort of parallel to this, to like white race suicide. So that's kind of the, the general framework of romantic anti-capitalism. Um, and um, just to just to add one more point to this, obviously, Asian people, particularly Chinese, when we think of like, you know, um, their arrival to the United States were never associated with you know, financial sectors of the economy like Jewish people were in Europe. And so one of the ways that I adapt Poststone's argument is to say that, you know, well, they might not have been associated with a destructive value regime that was based in kind of, you know, uh, financial sectors of the economy. Rather, they were kind of seen as their excessive efficiency, That so their labor actually represented kind of this destructive value regime that, you know, was threatening to white labor. So that's, so I, I sort of adapt it to sort of think about um, that uh, destructive element being kind of embedded in, in an yeah. Asiatic form of labor. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I just think uh, it's probably useful, at least for some, to, to mention to some listeners, some probably already know this, but some, for those who are unfamiliar with this, um, would might need to, would like to know that, you know, your argument is kind of premised upon this very famous first chapter of Marx's Capital, where he lays out these terms like use value and exchange value and how capitalism is this dialectic between the two. So for those who might have like read that first chapter in a class sometime, you might want to revisit it to understand the argument better. I, I find it actually kind of difficult. Uh, like, you know, when I taught your text before, I felt like I had to give a 30 minute lecture on, reif on like fetishism and reification. And that almost takes up the whole class time. So it, it is kind of this. Um, <laughs> it's harder than you think to explain. <laughs> yeah. It is, you know, without delving into a, oh, an hour lecture on fetishism, I think the basic point, right, is that it, I, w I would say in capitalism, this is my example, how I would say, like, you know, you and I, we, we, as academics, we write books and we write specific books. You wrote about, you know, alien capital. I wrote my book about whatever. That is the concrete labor we performed. At the same time, our books are contributing to this general sense that books take eight years to publish and that gets academics, you know, a certain, gets them so far in uh, in their careers. So our books are simultaneously concrete, specific products of our individual labor, but they're also simultaneously contributing to this abstract average, right? I, I guess that I would say that, um, you know, in terms of like academic publishing, I, I it's more a probably when you think about its value, it's probably more associated with, with um, artwork in a way because you know yeah. the longer that you work on something doesn't mean it's more valuable like it's sort right. of it does so i use like more basic examples okay. like a table right a yeah. table okay. it might take me 20 hours to build a table right but but its value is not based on my personal 20 hours of labor that i put into it it's based on the social average of table right. making <laughs> right right so yeah so, and so that individual table maker is both making a table but contributing to a social average. Right. It's both. It's both, right? Yes. And so what you're what, what I think you're saying and what Moish was saying was it's a mistake to separate these and to say that one group of people are doing real quality quality, you know, concrete work and there are those out there who are just uh, not focused on quality, only focused on the quantitative abstract social, you know, social marketplace aspect of it. Uh, and what happens was people began to perceive, well, when, in, in Moisha's case, it was German workers did real good work. 
and Jewish money was this invasive threat that invaded and overtook the concrete labor of Jew of German workers. In their case, it would be sort of like white, let's say like white miners in California, right? They did real work, right? Mm -hmm. And they were like the original people who belonged on the land and the Asian uh, miners were like this invasive threat that didn't do a better job. They just did it for cheaper or something like that. I, I think I think there's a great uh, example. I mean, I think that even if you look at the icon or the 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 graphic iconography of 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 like late nineteenth, early twentieth century labor, it's yeah, like the white heroic laborer, right? right? And then Asians are Chinese. The Chinese are represented as rats, literally. Right. You know, yes. so what could be more of an abstraction of labor than that? So yeah, so exactly. So the we and I think that there's you know when you think about capitalism, I mean, it sort of makes sense that we would prefer or embrace the concrete because it's what we can see. It's part of the organic kind of thingly world that we are in contact with and what we can, you know, whereas the abstract circuits of capitalism, which are that social equivalence that you're talking about in terms of thinking about how the real quantitative, um, the, the, the value of a table is actually this quantitative abstraction, right? It's not based on the heroic labor of the individual. It's actually based on this quantitative abstraction, so, which we don't see, right? And it has, it's kind of beyond representation. And so given that is the way that capitalism is structured, right? Um, it's, you know... Um, it lends itself, I think, to our desire to personify that abstraction because we don't understand it. We can't see it. It happens sort of, as Marx says, behind the backs of the laborers. Right, yeah. So. Yeah, and, you know, for listeners who are probably aware of this, there's a famous volume called Yellow Peril that Verso Books put out, which has the imagery that Professor Day was just talking about of, of Chinese workers as rats, as vermin, or also like evil, evil like long fingernail, long mustache kind of uh, types. Or as um, octopus, so, or yeah, octopus, yeah. or as a robot, yeah. So those, those, that imagery just honestly makes the argument so clearly, right? Um, now, one question I had though was, um, you know, you explain, I think, really persuasively how this, what you call antinomy, you know, within capitalism gets misperceived, this concrete versus abstract thing. Do you do you have a sense of well, why does it have to become? Why does it turn into a racial thing? I guess is the question is and is and I think you know I'm persuaded perhaps like that this is, that this is the end result. It's kind of hard to argue with the results, but I wonder like is is there like would you say it's like it's about political institutions? It's about cultural products like magazine ads or short stories. How do, how does it get? Why does it get racialized or how does it get racialized? Well, as I, I think that the best answer is always an answer from like Ruthie Gilmore. So I would say that what she says, you know, which is that, you know, capitalism is a system of an inequality and racism enshrines it. And so we and and then so, you know, you get so racism. There's a kind of irrationality to to racism to a certain extent, but it but the work that it performs is to is to legitimize the inequality that capitalism needs to reproduce, right? Uh, whether they're the relationships between capital and labor or uh, the other um, circuits of capitalism that require, you know, this sort of violent inequality, this, you know, um, so I would say that. And and I mean, for me, um, I've sort of thought about, I, I've, I don't really speak to it very much in, in my book, but I think that, you know, the work of Silvia Federici, um, even the work of uh, the the book Racecraft by yeah, Karen Fields. Barbara, yeah, Barbara and Karen, Fields, Karen yeah. Fields, you know, there's which kind of elaborates on the 
the irrationalities of of racism or this sort of what they call the immaterial ontologies or uh, of race um uh so so th- thinking of that but then you know with the insights of Silvia Federici and she's like saying well you know she disagrees with a lot of these feminists who are saying that there's some kind of like trans historical you know sexual uh and gendered kind of um association with women right and she says no it's always she 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 it's always shaped by the sort of political economy and so looking at the um transition from feudalism to capitalism in the 16th and 17th centuries she's looking at the ways in which there's a sort of targeting of 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 witches during a, a period which through this transition from feudalism to capitalism, there's a new requirement of the political economy that women, you know, perform certain kinds of forms of social reproduction, that they do not enter into wage labor, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah. so, and that that is also kind of happening um, at the same time as, you know, you know, the colonial invasion of, you know, of different, of the Americas is happening. And so that they're all linked, you know, so... Yeah um yeah yeah so yeah so in that sense i see your book as contributing to or being aligned with uh these arguments they're not saying that like it's not as simple as you know capitalism invented racism or capitalism invented sexism but it is to say something that these modern forms of these uh forms of discrimination or bias are specific to industrial capitalism or you know the capitalist era let's say um and that there's therefore there's a history to it. It's not natural. It can be historicized, and you know, ideally, optimistically, that perhaps that means that it could also be changed. And you know, politically. Yeah, I mean, well. yeah, but I mean, just to, I mean, uh, I, I, I agree. It's not simply as easy as saying that. Um capitalism produced racism but i would argue against the notion that racism produced capitalism yes <laughs> right okay. So, okay yeah i mean we so, can we can we can get into that honestly yeah uh, i mean uh, yeah so cap no i i think that capitalism you know again because it requires this sort of inequality it, it you know it, it is enshrined through ra- racial notions and through the work of Cedric Robinson, we learned that, you know, the first sort of racial notions happen in Europe, mm-hmm. right? And um, so I think that's a really important insight for us thinking about like non-European context of racial formation, but also how I think another important insight that I glean from his work is just to sort of understand that capitalism is never a pure system and that to see that there are these kind of feudal vestiges always kind of with us, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So I think um, I want to open up to listeners, but I do want to get one more question in there, which is, this is the, to kind of get at the last, I guess to bring this, 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 this theory or this story you tell in the introduction to kind of try to bring into the present, um, and in the last chapter of the book, you talk about the sort of post-65, you know, the, the large wave of Asian immigration to the North Americas um, in this period. And there's been, and you talk about how, it has been well documented, there's been almost polarization within the Asian diaspora with between sort of what, what you call high-tech, sort of middle-class uh, service technology-oriented industries, highly educated Asian diaspora, as well as what are kind of seen as retro coolies, those who kind of perform the same sort of, um, unfortunately, like the same sort of like um, blue collar manual labor um, without the social upward mobility uh, of, of the other part of the Asian immigration uh, uh, diaspora. And But you also say that, I'll, I'll just kind of read this line from, from your book on 172, you say, in the aftermath of immigration reforms that increasingly privilege wealthy Asian migrants and exclude poor Asian migrants, 
Romantic anti-capitalism rejects the former, meaning the, the wealthy, for being agents of an economic takeover, so like the Vincent Chin scenario, right? And the latter for draining economic resources and stealing jobs. I guess that's more Vincent Chin. The latter, the former would be something like the scientists, right? Um, once again, bearing out the contradictory promise of settler colonial hospitality. Um, so I guess the question is more generally, I guess there's two questions. One, um, is, is your argument therefore that, you know, the Asian scientists, you know, who get, who get accused of being spies or just like those of us in, you know, who, who work at Google or something, right? And, and do, do you feel like there's just... As, as much upward mobility as there is, there's still always a specter that Asians represent an abstract threat. And I guess the kind of the paired question is sort of, and this might, you might, you might answer these separately, right? Is um, I, I think I, when I finished your book, I was thinking like this, I think a lot of this is true. I also wonder like, what do Asians do now? Like how, how does this change the political outlook of the Asian Americans? Like now I know how we get racialized. How does that change our politics, right? Which is a separate question. So I don't know if you want to first address what, 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 what how do you see the status of the, you know, what is probably, I don't know, maybe tongue in cheek being called a high tech coolie um, in, 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 your, in your reading? I mean, so I think this is a general, the, what I'll start with is that it's a general framework for the way that I'm thinking about this is that, you know, if we want to connect different forms of, like to connect or to understand the interconnections of racial formation in the United States, I would say policing, you know, borders and military bases are kind of the way that, you know, a U.S. empire manages surplus population. So for Asian Americans until mid-century, it was the border primarily um, as, a, as a force of political social exclusion. Um, and then after the what I call the neoliberal immigration reforms um, in 1965 in the U.S. and 1967 in the Canada, basically that changes um, the preferences, right? And so you have family reunification that always is going to disadvantage Asians anyways because you don't have a whole because you've decimated the population already through immigration reform, but uh, or restriction, I should say. But you gradually see that there's a preference for, you know, the investor professional managerial class of immigrants from Asia, from anywhere, really, but particularly from Asia. And so I feel like in a way, my argument about the romantic, you know, this sort of association of Asians with a kind of economism is actually associated with the economism of actually having capital itself, right? Is an is an immigrant group. Um, you know, maybe like an example of that would be kind of also the specter of the kind of crazy rich Asians. I mean, in, in Vancouver, you know, which is also right. pejoratively and called, you know, Hongcouver, you see right. sort of a children of, of Chinese immigrants who, you know, are driving, you know, Lamborghinis and stuff to like to to class or or this this perception of the crazy rich Asian right, um so there's still I'm saying that there's still this um uh negative association with the kind of re- what I call retro coolie the refugee let's say the the uh, Filipinx nanny who is on a work visa who is totally exploited um whose immigrant status is totally exploited and makes her or mostly her or uh hyper exploitable at the same time um uh you have you know yeah you have this sort of professional managerial class that is totally associated with labor and also kind of, and and um, um uh, has that kind of a negative association which is sort of the way that I as you mentioned I just started the book because um, there was all this controversy in Canada in 2012 when 
they put an Asian scientist on this newly designed $100 bill. And they said, oh, does it represent Canada, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I was just like, yeah, there's this kind of a, so this really, even the scientist yeah, even the scientist. Not, cannot be celebrated, right? Because there's yeah. this kind of, uh, yeah, this this sort of idea that um, that uh, that they're kind of ahead of other people, et cetera. And and there's and so I was kind of interested in that sort of anti anti Asian sentiment being associated with that um, expression of of association with capital. Whether maybe it's undeserved, whatever. But so I was kind of which it, so in a in an interesting way. I would say that that particular racialization or a negative um, that form of racism against the sort of professional Asian person yeah. um, actually is more aligned with maybe traditional anti-Semitism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I guess the second question is, and I think this applies to me at least. Like, so what's the PMC agent supposed to do after, after, th- after thinking about how is racism rooted and how how does this change our politics? Is it is this about um, me feeling just like class privilege, like, oh, I am still like an outsider and I can still be excluded any moment? Or is it about um, changing the conversation from race to class and from race to overcoming capitalism and so on? Uh, I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you think, uh, you know, some pieces of advice, I guess, for, for the reader in terms of how does this change our politics? Right. I think that that's a great question. And I have been thinking a lot about the work of Claire Jean Kim and her new project, um, Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World. And I just learned so much from, you know, thinking about the sort of the real consequences of the differences, um, which I developed to some extent in in the book. But I just think that um, she goes so so much farther to think about the ways in which Asian Americans are kind of shareholders in anti-Blackness or can be. So I think the question is, you know, especially, and we can talk about this more, the the um in, during the pandemic you know we've seen the narrative around um the anti-asian um surge or the surge in anti-asian violence you know ha- that has been happening alongside in some ways the mundane um you know continual footage of of you know black people being murdered by police so so where do we see the connections right um and i think that actually the the connection between this the murder of the spa workers and kind of thinking about um the um, anti-black carceral state. Um, I think that there are interesting opportunities there to see convert, you know, to see a sort of uh, coalitional politics develop. But I also see in in much of the media kind of framing of things that there's something that there's this desire to see that Asians are sort of these innocent victims and that there's something exceptional about the violence um, rather than seeing that violence is a sort of everyday sort of situation for most people of color. Um, there's, a, and you know, the COVID-19 and, you know, uh, anti-hate, was it the hate crimes bill? Um, you know, in some ways it's, it's, well, I could, we can talk about liberal anti-racism more too, but um, one of the things that it also covers over is the fact that uh, more than any uh, Asians Americans are the only group of color um, who have a you know have a less like have a mortality rate from COVID that's you know less than white people right, yeah, right. or the you know the highest is Indigenous followed closely by Black and Latinx communities so we have to sort of stare into that gap and so and we have to decide you know do we want to um, 
you know, do we want to sort of say that the safety of Asian Americans is going to produce safety for these other groups? Because I don't think that's true. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I don't, it's not true. So particularly if we're going to rely on, um, you know, expanding policing and military infrastructures to do that. Um, so I think that it requires like really a trans, again, if we think of policing, uh, uh, policing, um, uh, borders and and military bases as being kind of interconnected aspects of U.S. empire, then we can see that, you know, okay, so our wars, imperial wars in Asia are kind of like the testing ground for the way in which, you know, domestic populations are policed. So one place that we can start is to have Asian Americans can start as, a, as an expression of anti-capitalist solidarity is to oppose, you know, the carceral, militarized policing kind of for, you know, uh, that whole infrastructure. So I think that that's where I'm sort of thinking about right now. Yeah, I mean, in a way, maybe um, what I'm thinking is uh, what your book could be suggesting is, you know, if if, if you kind of like, uh, if someone were to suggest something like, you know, let's criticize capitalism and overcome all the problems with capitalism to just the general population, there might be a lot of groups who feel like, you know, yes, like, let's do this, this is hurting our group, this is hurting my family, and so on. And on the other hand, you might have these, a lot of, like, second, first, gen, second generation, very well-off Asian immigrants who would say something like, eh, we're, like, we're fine with capitalism, it's doing, it's it's going well for us, and our, it's good for our families, and especially because we left a communist country, for instance. Um, and perhaps your book is suggesting, like, no, there is a way that capitalism is also, um, uh, putting you into like the same boat as everyone else not, not, the, not the same boat but like in a different way but yeah. also like you also have an investment in overcoming in doing real anti-capitalism uh, to, to avoid the pitfalls of romantic anti-capitalism yeah I mean absolutely I mean if you look at you know yeah settler colonial racial capitalism as a system that asymmetrically targets people of color most predominantly indigenous and black people it certainly includes Asian Americans as well right so um, I think that it's um, there, I think that, you know, it's difficult, but I think that Asian Americans have to sort of uh, think about where, whether or not their positionality is, uh, you know, whether or not what they're, what they think of as social justice is actually an investment in it or in an alignment with kind of whiteness, right? Um, an investment in whiteness which are like, you know, affirmative action politics, for example, which are, you know, a, de a desire to be included, right, in this, the existing system, rather than, uh, you know, a radical critique of those who are totally left at the bottom of that, who have no, you know, no association with, you know, the politics of affirmative, a affirmative action or the bamboo ceiling or whether or not you're going to get into Harvard. Yeah. Does anyone have any questions? I know there's a lot of... Yeah, I have a question for... Yeah. Hi. Uh, really good talk. Unfortunately, I didn't get to listen to all of it, but um, I have a question about an essay that you wrote uh, in the latest anti-Blackness like essay, uh, like compilation. Um, uh, and it... You mean uh, edited by Moon Ki Jung and Joao Costa Vargas? Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. okay. Uh, in yeah, in your critique of Afropessism, uh, you wrote there was this weird bit that I wanted to hear more about, which was the connection you made between uh, Asian American men and uh, Black women, and I was just like, not sure about, or I don't know, that just struck me as um, yeah. 
that's interesting and i like to go more in that uh i'm sorry like it's very vague but no 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 that's a that 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 particular point of my argument is something i keep thinking about and um uh, is something I should probably develop more. But I was thinking in particular about how, you know, when you think about Chinese labor being recruited to um, North America to work, you know, to mine, to build railroads, et cetera. Uh, you know, at first Chinese labor is, is sort of praised for its efficiency, but then as it becomes threatening to white labor, that's when all of these, um, that's when like the, Asian labor is seen as destructive and actually we have these associations of, of the destructive qualities of Chinese labor being associated with perversity because um, they restricted Chinese women or Asian women. You know, you're, a lot of that perversity was rooted in the home, uh, the homosocial bachelor space, which was seen as this kind of den of, you know, illness, disease, or disease kind of addiction and, and vice. So I was kind of interested in that transition, like, you know, so it's sort of like, which is also the transition to model minority, where it's like that efficiency is either favored or it's it's uh, associated with these, with this sort of depravity. And so with Black, lab, black women's labor, I was interested in the way that black women's labor is responsible for, you know, a form of what I what I was thinking about in terms of relative surplus value, and in, in the sense that their labor was also both in the fields in terms of <laughs> building the infrastructure of, of uh, the settler nation, but it was also in terms of building the the actual laborers or increasing the the laborers. So I was interested in that as being kind of productive, like you know, being sort of on many sides of you know, increasing the value of, of, of labor. But then in the aftermath of slavery, how um, black women's labor is totally denigrated and um, seen as a source of, and black women as mothers are kind of seen as, um, as are, are considered sort of degenerate or considered to not uh, conform to sort of heteropatriarchal norms. And so I was kind of, I was sort of, trying to draw a parallel with that that transition if that makes okay sense. Yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah yeah it's just it's something that my friends and i we like like i pass around the book and they were like also kind of curious about that part but that that, that helped thank you very much also i think people you know like you have like a little, a little crew here oh. <laughs> <laughs> is that a car yeah, the, our our listeners actually have had a get together this weekend, and uh, it's it's a long story anyway. Okay. Um, anyone else have a question? Um, so I got one a question in the chat, which was, um, I'll just read it like verbatim. You have a multifaceted analysis in the book that assesses different kinds of racism specifically. In your response to me about what is to be done, you you seem to take a binary analysis that Asians choose between whiteness or blackness. Uh, do you want to perhaps clarify, is, is that what you meant or is, did, is there another way of thinking about that? Uh, I, I don't want, no, I'm very, I, I'm very um, opposed to binaries, I think, in the book. And I, I hope that I, I didn't um, uh, reinforce a kind of a binary view in, um, in, in my in speaking. But, I, but, I, but in terms of thinking about um, carceral systems or just it, particularly I was just thinking more recently about um, comparing actually my recent 
like in a recent essay I wrote was kind of comparing the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act against the COVID-19. So that hence like my sort of focus on sort of black, um, black and Asian and, and um, th that relation. But I mean, obviously the carceral system is, is totally in, like um, embedded in colonial system. And um, so, so and, and indigenous people are, peoples are incarcerated at probably one of the highest rates of than any group. So in Canada and the US. So, so, um, so I guess, yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, I'm talking about, you know, I, I, I think that what I want to reinforce is that at least um, there to, to maybe adapt what Claire Jean Kim has been writing about is that, is that Asians, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's an advantage and a disadvantage. There's an advantage, there's a disadvantage because of a not whiteness, but there's an, an advantage because of a not nativeness and a not blackness. That's really material. And one of the examples that I think was really, that was really interesting that I learned from her work was um, just even thinking about the question of Asian unassimilability, which is one of the keystones of kind of Asian American history. Oh, Asians were unassimilable aliens, uh, ineligible for citizenship. So we often think of this as this, you know, uh, you know, as a really profound expression of um, anti-Asian racism. But when we think about the history and we look into that, I mean, in the 19th century, um, this notion of unassimilability is also a way, uh, another way to look at it is actually that, particularly with the Chinese, it was a way of seeing the Chinese as actually being from a culture that was so durable, so fixed and strong that it was, a you know, that it was completely uh, antithetical to whatever US culture was, right? So, so the unassimilability is actually premised on a kind of cultural worth or value. Whereas right. for black people who are being enfranchised after the civil war, right? Um, you know, in name only, that enfranchisement or that assimilability into US culture is actually based on the sort of absence of African national or a, a, a black nationalism or a, uh, a rooted culture, right? So there's sort of this notion that it's that black assimilability is in fact based on um, uh, a total void, right? right? Because there's nothing else. To, you know, so there's only uh, the option to assimilate into blackness because there's nothing that kind of comes before it. So I'm kind of thinking about those things as, uh, you know, in order to, um, in order to kind of offer a more nuanced, um, response to anti-Asian and anti-Black racism that seems to be in the headlines right now um, in order to just, because I think that to say that it's all just white supremacy is not enough in this moment. And in addition that the only response from the state is to offer anti-discrimination policing and hate crime legislation. So yeah. I'm not sure if that's a totally adequate response, but that's kind of just what where my head has been lately. Yeah. And I would also say, um, you know, in the book, you very uh, clearly talk about you wanted to talk about triangulation, right? That it's not just a binary. One thing that kind of came up in our discussion was um, if so the, the status of Asian Asian immigrants in this triangulation was they were alien labor in the same sense that, you know, enslaved black labor was, but unlike enslaved black labor, which is, of course, unfree and kind of always seen as a commodity, you know, literally, literally a commodity, right? Asian labor was always much more of this flexible, you can let them some in, exclude them kind of 
uh, uh, they kind of occupy that position. Do you think that that would also apply to all sorts of other immigrant groups who would come post emancipation and kind of exploited for their cheap labor? Because if they're not necessarily more efficient, they're at least considered cheaper or, you know, um, more expendable than native or settler labor. Um, so in the 21st century, obviously, you have like Latin American, but also like Caribbean labor, um, uh, South Asian labor. Um, I, I, I assume you would say like, I mean, what do you think? They yeah, no, I think I think. Yeah. So I was with the book. I hoped that some of the admittedly kind of complex theoretical infrastructure that I tried to develop around the kind of heterogeneity of the alien position. Yeah. I hope that it would be kind of something that people could build on because mm -hmm. I don't really, I mean, my book is really focused on the first, it probably it really, the most of it, most of it is kind of up to the mid, mid 20th century. There's a little bit um, on the sort of post uh, immigration reform in the 1960s, but um, I was hoping that it would kind of offer a blueprint for sort of expanding and kind of thinking about specific group, other groups, you know? Um, uh, so I think that, you know, the question that I get the most is, you know, how does this apply to Latinx or yeah, like to, you know, undocumented immigrants and, and, and what we would now say, you know, fills the, you know, it, it occupies the position of cheap labor as undocumented labor. And I think that there's definitely connections. And I think that Chinese labor is a blueprint for our understanding of like citizenship as it relates to labor and um, this category of, of um, illegal, right? Of the illegal. But at the same time, it's different too, because Latinx, I mean, just in terms of the racial, the legal, racial, uh, legal classifications of race where often Latinx were considered white legally, right? Or they were, they were sort of where there was a plasticity in Asian conceptions of labor as being kind because, you know, their entrance into the U.S. economy is, you know, right. in the aftermath of slavery. So it's like with uh, Moon Ho Jung's book, you know, it's sort of like they were either seen as kind of the continuation of slavery or a break from slavery. So they were in this sort of weird right. abstract zone. Whereas with Latinx, it's sort of like they're in the zone between black and white. <clears throat> Yeah. Uh, so, but then kind of shaped by <laughs> the experiences of, of Chinese <clears throat> labor. So the, the, the border plays an important role. So, I, I mean, I welcome that, yeah. that work, you know, I, and I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in that question a lot. Um, um, and, you know, obviously the structural analysis that I am hoping to provide doesn't, you know, go right. into those nuances that it could. Yeah, yeah, no, I saw, I saw your work as kind of hoping to be generative rather than like the final word. I have two written questions that people wrote in. Um, the first is, uh, basically, do you think this notion of alien capital as a racial form, does it travel um, beyond the U.S.? And the particular reference is, point is, uh, this, this, the person who wrote in um, talked about how, you know, he's, Korean Canadian, Korean American goes back to Can uh, to Korea and notices that there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment within Korea recently that shares a lot in common with your description of the personification of bad capital in settler colonial economies in the 19th and 20th centuries around real estate investment and tourism and so on. Um, uh, and there's also been more in the headlines about Korea's dependence on transnational workers who are paid cheaper wages, afforded fewer protections than the Korean counterparts. Um, have you thought about the sort of the transportability of this racial form, even back to Asia itself? Yeah, you know, I love that question. I, in a 
you know, I have theoretically, very theoretically proposed that that would be a question that I kind of would pursue after the project that I'm currently working on, which is on nuclearism. But I'm actually, it's not, I mean, I guess it is about transnationalism and <clears throat> anti-Chineseness, but I'm, I'm sort of thinking, of, I'm rethinking in many ways, alien capital, um, just because uh, so much of the, in my book, and just rereading re kind of the, the I guess the, um, the implications of the book and seeing that so much of the racism, the anti-Asian sentiment is so rooted in anti-Chineseness specifically or Sinophobia in particular. Yeah. And the connections between Sinophobia and anti-Semitism are actually really strong. And so I, I, I mean, these are questions that I haven't had a chance to really research, but thinking about the sort of particular mobility of the Chinese through Asia as merchants, as merchant capitalists, they're et cetera. The, they're the Jews of Asia, yeah. Right, exactly. So. <laughs> So I was thinking about pursuing a project actually about the, you know, global sinophobia and romantic anti-capitalism, um, but that will be, um, that will not come anytime soon, yeah. but, I, I, but I, I keep thinking about that and I keep being, I keep feeling that it's, it's, I keep feeling that there's more and more evidence to sort of support this. And in particular, we see this, I felt like, you know, with, um, with Trump's, you know, continual invocation of the Chinese virus, I kept thinking this is yeah. this is because the virus could be both sort of, you know, a reference to the epidemic, but also sort of like to the pestilence that has always been associated with kind of the Chinese yeah. as a destructive kind of value. Um, yeah. Another question was, um, and this comes from someone who's actually in Asian American studies, who was wondering um, your thoughts on Marxism or political economy within Asian American studies. Um, you know, like, I guess this perhaps gets to the question of, you know, how was your book received among other Asian Americanists, your sort of intervention or challenge to think about race in this sort of Marxist framework? And uh, as an extension, do you think that explicit engagements with Marx have been marginal in the field of Asian American studies? And, and you know, why do you, do you feel like this is changing? Maybe in the future, there'll be more reception or, or, or less or so on? I think, well, I think it's interesting because I think that Asian American studies has always been interested and invested in the question of capitalism because it's, and, and obviously labor. Labor is a huge, you know, uh, it's a huge cornerstone of the field. Um, however, I mean, that the category of labor under Marxism has been under increasing contestation, uh, which is another, another, maybe another conversation. But do I feel that Asian American studies could invest more in Marxism? I hope so. I think that <laughs> I think that it has. I mean, I think that when I was a graduate student, you know, Lisa Lowe's, um, you know, long introduction to immigrant acts is, a, is it was itself kind of an intervention into particularly this conception of abstract labor and abstract citizenship, you know, a way of sort of thinking through how inequality is sort of produced out of these uh, these forms of equivalence, right, that that are required under capitalism. So I um, so I feel like that was always part of the groundwork, you know, so I include, you know, and then Colleen Lai's work, which is very, right. uh, you know, invested in Marxism and, um, you know, but I think that, it, I think that right now, I mean, since 2008, the 2008, 2009 kind of um, yeah. housing crisis, uh, I feel like there's been just across the board, both in popular semi-popular um, and then even in, and, and also in scholarly um, work there's just been so much more interest in Marxism and and honestly there's just so much for that Marxism can teach whether or not you know whether you read it for the 
methodology, which is what someone like Vijay Prashad would, would recommend, or, or whether you read it for the, the specific insights. And many of us are, I mean, I'm really interested in, you know, the last chapter on primitive accumulation. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly helpful for thinking about what, what our situation is and how unremarkable it is from his perspective. Like it's, yeah. it's so predictable in a, in a way. Yeah. I mean, in the history field, Similarly, after 08, there's been this resurgence, but I also think I'm wondering uh, in the last few years if it's gone in this direction, which you just kind of briefly mentioned a little bit earlier, which is that, especially for America's historians, they would say like the problem with capitalism is that it's racist, right? And then that is like the main um oh and if we could get rid of racism then it would be okay right just uh, uh, right and and so like the emphasis upon exploitation or what your book is arguing like that it's sort of like formative connection to all sorts of different social forms that, that obfuscate reality and so on and so forth, which, you know, I, I love that stuff. And that's like, that's more like literature than, than historians. Um, yeah. I almost wonder if the window is closing for a deeper exploration of, of, cause there was this great opening after 08 where people were like, let's reread Marx. And I do think that there is a sort of liberal attempt to neutralize it. Uh, I might be, maybe I'm being a little paranoid. Well, um, no, liberal attempts are out there to neutralize everything. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I think so. I mean, I think that this is where I think um, actually Afro-pessimist or, you know, someone like um, Tiffany King, who's working at the sort of margin or the crossover of indigenous studies and black studies, you know, have, I think, pr provided like important critiques of, of the argument that, you know, Marxism can be sort of re is reducible to sort of systems of exploitation. Um, and that we, if we simply improve the working conditions of people, give them a higher wage, like a $15 an hour minimum wage that, you know, that will, you know, be on the road to, to freedom or something. Again, you know, I, I, but I've, you know, Postone was always crit critical of labor, labor itself. And so now we see this interesting alignment where, where you have, and particularly from indigenous centers too, that the question isn't about exploitation, it's about disposability and dispossession. Um, and, um, so I think that when we, yeah, so I think that even through, I mean, you know, trying to, you know, find a through line, um, in works like Ruthie Gilmore, who sort of talks about how, you know, the way in which capitalism resolves crises, you know, in, in over accumulation is to move people to yep. get rid of people and that borders, you know, prisons and military bases are part of the infrastructure that that support that support the reproduction of that. So that's what happens. So, um, so what is this saying about history? I mean, I don't. Or just like you yeah. know, this this trend I think within academia, but that's it's you know we can I talk mean, about that forever. Hard. Yeah, Marxism I understand is like associated because there was because of the legacy of 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 the of anti-communism in this country i mean it's virtually not taught yeah <laughs> you know so you kind of have to find your own sort of reading group or thankfully david harvey has his right. wonderful lectures online but you know you have to be very committed to actually uh you know so it's like you have to be very committed to kind of uh learn to study this work and so i and i've tried to, to teach it and um and it's hard i mean capital is not an easy, um, you yeah. know, you think that Derrida is hard, but you know, it's like <laughs> this is this is actually pretty hard, and it requires 
um, a lot of you know abstract thinking, which which can be difficult for students, especially those that I teach who are undergraduates for the most part. But once they get it, it's like yo, like the lights kind of turn on, and it's um, it's really yeah. remarkable. Yeah, at the very least, I think you know I tell my students, you've lived in this world for 18, 20 years, so you actually do understand this. You just don't know it yet, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, one one final question that. I, it's probably related to the earlier question about um, where, where other groups fit in is, I was curious, uh, or this was a question someone else asked, does, um, was your book read and uh, how, how was it received among study, uh, scholars of indigenous studies and did they welcome the intervention? I think that, you know, generally it's hard to sort of see the reception and divide it up into like different categories of like, were you in this field or that field? But I think in general, um, um, my work kind of came into like I, I like people like Glenn Coulthard, who's a political theorist um, at UBC, at UBC um, indigenous, a Diné scholar, um, Audra Simpson, you know, people who were, I mean, people were thinking about settler colonialism and capitalism and, and uh, you know, that those were sort of part of like, those, those were very uh, kind of influential um, scholars for the, my own thinking. And so I feel like, you know, I kind of remain sort of in conversation with, with, with those kinds of, with indigenous scholars who are engaged, actively engaged in Marxism, particularly with Glenn Coulthard. Um, also someone like Rob Nichols, who are also, you know, really rethinking uh, Marxist theory from the perspective of, of indigenous dispossession, right? Um, so, um, and colonization. Um, yeah. So I think that that has been good. I mean, I think that the, and then I, the one, the one, I think that the biggest struggle for me or the, if there's, you know, the ongoing struggles, I think that I find interesting actually uh, is, you know, there's a, there's um, Asian American scholars are very invested in actually more invested in the settler category and whether or not Asian Americans themselves are, are settlers. Um, and I, 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 the triangulation that I tried to formulate was not meant to be fixed. It was sort of like certainly Asians who are coming from an alien position can occupy and you know reinforce a, a settler position, particularly in the case of Hawaii. But I, I so that's. But I have noticed that 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 question yeah, has like true. really, really been sort of volatile <laughs> at times. Um, there are certainly sort of areas of of um, you know areas that that Asian Americans are concerned about, um, and 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 perhaps that's shifting now that there's been kind of a trans-Pacific turn in um, Asian American studies where there's a lot of focus on indigenous groups in the Pacific Islands, right? Which has not necessarily been a focus up till up till now. And then finally, I'll just say finally, um, I think that there's more convergence, hopefully, between what I've called sort of offhand, like as a white Marxist sort of class exploitation orientation, yeah. and those of us who are trying to think about how race also is constitutive of capitalism, you know, and to sort of do the sort of long division to show that rather than just say, oh, it's just racist because it's racist, but yeah. to really sort of think about how it works and how it specifically operates for different groups. Yeah, yeah. Hi, thanks so much for all of your discussion on the book. I just have one question. 
Um, in your book, you use cultural products to show how these artists explored and or reflected the arguments you made about romantic anti-capitalism and settler colonialism. So thinking about these works contrasted against ones that are really popular now, at least in America, like Crazy Rich Asians, Bling Empire, Minari, um, especially since they're held up in the mainstream as examples of Asian success, supposedly. Um, what do you think about the role of art and literature products themselves as reproducing or challenging the framework that you lay out in Alien Capital? That's a great question. I'm, I'm glad that it sort of helps or takes us one step out of our conversation, which has been mostly on kind of like race and political economy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything that I understand, I think about capitalism, yeah, is sort of, you know, mediated by cultural production. So I think that for me, it's sort of what I, you know, in terms of thinking about imagining like futurities, imagining kind of our own present moment, I, I often find that it's sort of present in, in art and cultural production before we can even think it, you know, so and and I think of, um, you know, Alan D'Souza's um, recent book, which is called, you know, Art as Thought. And so I, I, I find that, you know, I don't even really, I had to sort of engage with a lot of art um, and different photography, cultural production, I'm, you know, constantly looking at things. And um, for me, it helps me understand or it helps to distill kind of the theoretical points um, that exist in, um, you know, in the abstract, you know, theorizations of capital. So for me, it's sort of like both uh, it's kind of like a hermeneutic for me. It's, it, it, it could sort of, so I look for it for answers to some extent and for revealing or exposing structures that aren't always present to us, you know, that seem in some ways um, beyond representation. And the reason I look at visual culture also is sort of a response to, you know, the way that um, capitalism makes certain things abstract like and beyond representation. So what if we look at the way that artists have actually in some ways tried to imagine or, or create a representation for, for those things that are otherwise kind of invisible? Well, thanks thanks so much for taking time um, out of your busy Monday to, to talk with us. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for like uh, all these really uh, great questions. I hope that I was somewhat clear. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's like you know the book probably better than I do at this point. <laughs>